Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to The Messy Truth, conversations on photography. Today I'm talking to Kimberly Drew. Kimberly's a curator, writer and activist focused on the intersection of race and art in the age of social media. She is the founder of Tumblr Black Contemporary Art, a space to celebrate black art and culture. She spent several years working on the gallery circuit in New York before being appointed as the social media manager for The Met, a prestigious job that she left in 2018. She now works as a freelance creative, using her visibility to champion her community. Kimberly's mission is to bring art to as many people as she can. She is a fierce advocate of radical accessibility. She's interested in driving change and creating opportunities for everyone to learn about art together. I'm excited to talk to her about social media and how she believes it can best serve both artists and audiences in a meaningful way. I grew up in Orange, New Jersey, which is uh, about 15 minutes away from Newark, New Jersey, which was a really central place in the Black Arts Movement in the 1970s, and also about 35 minutes away from New York City, which we all know is one of the big centers of art in the world. And it really influenced me in that I didn't ever feel too far from culture. Um, I didn't, my, my mother's brother was a DJ, which I love. And I never have ever been able to see one of his sets, but I kind of want to like make that request one day. Um, my godmother um, sang and went to the Boston Conservatory on, on the other side. I grew up in a family where we would go to museums anytime we got together aunts who are artists. And so for me, it's always been such an integral part of my life. And I think a lot of that is because of the location where I grew up. Seems like from an early age, you really kind of found your mission and you really had a sense of what you wanted to do with your time in the world. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I would say it's relatively true. Um, It's odd because I think at this stage of my life, I spent a lot of time talking to students. And it's so wild to talk to someone who's 17 or 18 and thinks they have to have it all figured out. And so for me, it's funny because, yeah, with retrospect now, I can say like, oh, yeah, I found it at this perfect time. I was 20, 21 years old and really had this aha moment of like, this is who I need to be and this is where I need to be. But for so many young people, they're, you know, picking majors in university or going on their own and they have to, they feel like this incredible pressure to have it figured out at 19. And that's just so untrue. Yeah, it's too much. I meet so many young photographers who actually feel so much pressure to be famous when they look at, you know, the Mm -hmm. amazing talents of people like Tyler Mitchell and they think, oh, I need to be that big by I'm 24. But that's not necessarily going to be the pathway for everybody. And it's so hard when people are holding themselves up to this, you know, these incredible sort of fortuitous moments in some ways. I think it can be really tough on them. Yeah. And the thing is too, I I was speaking of photographers that I love. um, Last night I was for dinner with um, Shaniqua Jarvis. And we were having this conversation about so many people who want to be doing the exact same work that we're doing. Meanwhile, it's so hard to find um, 
young people who are doing, you know, DP work or who are doing carpentry or who are doing, you know, these any any other number of creative roles. Um, and so what does it mean also to utilize your time as a young person to just explore more, right? So it's not just about like head down, running f- headfirst into this one type of career, one type of way of living, um, thinking about what does it mean to be on a set? How many different ways can you engage on a set? Um, I think is something that I, th- that if I could, you know, talk to every young person in the world, I would impress upon them because there's just so many ways to get involved. I remember getting, um, to my most recent job and realizing that there were engineers and lawyers that worked in museums, you know, yeah. like it's, there's just so many ways yeah. to, to be involved. And especially for young people of color, it's important that, you know, you pick that up then, because if you're going to go to law school, if you're going to go to engineering school, it takes a lot of time, especially in the United States. So yeah, I think that it's, it's such an interesting kind of world we live in where there's a desire to be as famous as possible, mm. like a prodigy or something, yeah. as, you know? That's too much pressure. Too, that's too much pressure for anybody in a lifetime, let alone somebody who's still forming who they are and trying to discover themselves. Yeah. So I'd really love to talk to you about your Tumblr because it feels like that was a real catalyst for the work that you're doing now and kind of what you've kind of gone on to create for yourself. And I loved how you described it as this mini archive of black artists in your pocket. I thought that was brilliant. And I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about the genesis of that project and what it means to you. Yeah. When I started the blog, I was, you know, a young person who had no idea what they were doing. I had started college and was studying mathematics, was studying chemistry, was studying engineering, um, because I thought that those were the only jobs that would help me make enough money to make sense of how much I was paying for university, basically. Mm. And my incredible advisor, his name is Kevin Kwashi, uh, encouraged me because I was at the time also studying African-American studies, um, encouraged me to apply to the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, which is a branch of the New York Public Library, or to interview and apply to the internship at the Studio Museum in Harlem. And the Studio Museum in Harlem one was paid. And so I was really gung-ho about it. And I went there for 10 weeks. And in that 10 weeks, I worked in the director's office and worked um, also in our development kind of fundraising office. And whenever we had downtime, like your true millennial, I'd be researching and, you know, really invested in all the names that I was picking up and all these things. When I left that internship, I kind of had this weird come down moment because I had found an environment that really made sense for the way that my brain worked, where I could be a quote unquote business person, um, having quote unquote a real job, but then also be in a creative environment where I could go downstairs and see an exhibition on my lunch break. Um, And so I just needed to have something like that. And I also felt like in my classes, I wasn't seeing the types of artists that gave me that feeling. You know, black people have existed since the beginning of time. They were not in my art history classes. (laughs) And so I went to the internet like a true millennial to try to find um, a web resource that could do the same thing as um, being in the studio museum office where, you know, you could just casually learn about something new. You know, you overhear a conversation and you learn the names of three artists. Um, And I couldn't really find something that did that in a way that felt quite right. I was 19, 20 at the time. So naturally, I didn't even think to go to the library. Um, And I sat down um, at a work study job. I was very generous to have a job where I could work at a computer. I'm in a a, um, supervisor named Sharon Fagan, who's 
one of the most supportive people in a way that I don't think she'll ever understand. Um, like such an incredible impact on my life. Um, and I, I started this Tumblr blog called Blanc Contemporary Art. Um, I knew at that time, probably the name of five to 10 artists. Um, I think my first post might've been Jamel Shabazz, um, followed shortly by Samuel Faso. So I've always been obsessed with photography <laughs> in a way that I didn't even realize, but that's a whole other, we'll get back to that later. Um, but I just posted the artists that I knew, you know, it really started with five posts. And then immediately I called out to friends to help me out because I knew I didn't know everything. Um, and I think if there's anything else from this weird journey of my life is that it's not about knowing everything. Mm-hmm. It's really not. It's not about arriving ex- as an expert, whether that be in a career or visiting a museum. Um, the thing that's so epic, as you know very well about art, is that it's an opportunity to learn. And so for me, the blog was first and foremost an educational tool for myself um, because I wanted to widen my knowledge and deepen my knowledge of these artists. And um, in its first year, I think we had two or three contributors And so it was also incredible because I would post things and maybe they didn't know them or they would post things and maybe I didn't know them. And none of us had ever met like most Internet love story ever. Um, But it really was this thing that I made for myself. And with with hindsight as well, I can realize that I'm so glad also that I did it when I did, because I was still on my college campus. I went to Smith College, which is a women's college, and it's all about women's empowerment. And I, I think I just had like. Um, a phrase people say a lot is like dip on my chip. Like I was just like really confident, you know, like I'd had the the right environment to do the thing that I wanted to do. Um, because some years later when I wound up in New York art world and, you know, at this stage now I'm, I'm starting to realize like how impossible sometimes it is for young people to take a chance on themselves in the arts. Um, because you're in an environment where people say, oh, you can't do that. Oh, you can't do that. Um, but there wasn't a voice that said, oh, you can't do that. My voice was very much, I need this. Um, and so I'll make it. And then I discovered that other people needed it as well. That's very cool. I had no idea that it was a collaborative um, project. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Because you don't think about that when you necessarily think about blogs and Tumblr and stuff. You think about them as being sort of individual enterprises, but mm-hmm. that's super cool. Yeah. Yeah, I can't do anything alone. Like that's, that's my secret weapon. But what a great ethos. Yeah. I don't think the world can improve if everyone did everything on their own, you know, you need to, we need to be working together. Yeah. So I would love to know as somebody who has really sort of harnessed the power of social media in many different ways, I'd love to know how you think artists can best use social media in terms of developing their practice or getting their work in front of a wider audience. Yeah. I think first and foremost, Um, it's a question of how humans use social media. Because if you're not in the right place to be engaging online, it is not a good place for you, first and foremost. Um, There's often days where I personally have to delete Instagram from my phone Mm -hmm. um, or even Twitter is a crapshoot. I mean, the, the reality is, is that we're in wild times. And so I think the first thing to acknowledge of course, is just like a mental readiness for being in that kind of environment where, especially as a photographer, you're constantly being inundated with images. Mm -hmm. And um, my sister friend, hero, Sarah Lewis, in her um, editor's letter for the Vision and Justice issue that she edited for um, Aperture Magazine, she talks about this moment as one that demands visual literacy. And so that literacy for me is one part, of course, interpretation and understanding, and then another part, readiness for that. 
Um, and I think that comes back to a conversation on mental health anyway. Um, but if you are feeling well and you are feeling engaged and maybe you are feeling curious, no matter what stage you are in your career, um, I would say to do it because when any, you know, when I'm looking for anyone for any project, um, whether that be for a personal project or I want to recommend someone, we're in an economy now where you kind of have to put in a link to something. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that can be a website for sure, but you got to be really doing very well. If, you know, I can just send your website link to um, to certain folks or you have to do a really good job of setting that up. Um, but Instagram allows for uh, people to just better communicate some of what you have going on, to just plant a little kernel for an art director or for a brand or for a curator. Um, and so I, I always advocate for it, but first with the consideration of what you might need or what your practice might need. It's really fascinating to hear you talk about readiness, actually, because I think you're absolutely right, but it's just not something that people talk about. You know, are you in a stable sort of mindset or even just creatively and how you protect your creativity? I think it's something that I've talked to photographers about all the time. It's like, Instagram's a great tool to get yourself out there, but at the same time, you're digesting, just through using it, you're digesting millions of images in seconds. And that cannot not affect your practice. It it goes in there somewhere and it's doing something, even if you're lucky enough that it doesn't manifest in your work in a negative way. But I don't think it's necessarily an Instagram only thing. No. And that's the truth of the matter as well, because I think social media has this kind of moment of shift and change in modernity it's easy to point the finger at it because everything is so fast mm-hmm. and everything is so different and all these. But in truth, there's so many ways in which artists especially are impressionable by their environments, right? Like you see, you know, the artists who went to Black Mountain College or, you know, like these groupings of people who are learning from each other and how, you know, the gestures from artists that you like are raised with mm-hmm. become part of the way that you work. Right? Yeah. That's just what happens. Or as a researcher, there's even conversations about journalism where, you know, keeping keeping yourself healthy when you're in contact with some of the world's most extreme ills, right? So how do you maintain a readiness for the world when you are being exposed to information that like quite literally depresses you? So I don't think it's a social media only thing, mm-hmm. but it is just important to be mindful of that. Um, and that that's why I say it from a human perspective, because it really is just a matter of being human. We're all just so porous. Um, and because of social media, one thing that is very true because of social media is that our porousness is being a bit like we're being oversaturated in some ways. And so how do you maintain a sense of self within all of that or being able to develop your own identity within all of that? Because joining Instagram doesn't immediately mean that you won't have a creative bone in your body. That's not true. Like so many artists are inspired and have mood boarded and all these things like you take things in and you make your own thing. Mm-hmm. Um but I think that the strength to be able to do that is maybe, you know, individual to each person. It might be a meditation practice. It might be, you know, like who knows? Yeah. But anyway, I always try to think about that as well because I think we're moving into a moment where, you know, social media is so much a part of the way that we do things that we also have to be aware of the things that are pre-social media as well. Like people talk about Twitter being so fast or it being such a weird, intimate way or oversharing. And I'm like, well, press releases were a shocker too at one yeah. time or, you know, these other ways and modes of communication. We, we we flow, we grow, like that's part of being a part of a creative industry. And now we're just in a big wave that feels like a tidal wave, um, yeah. but not everything is new. Yeah. That's a good point. What's your personal relationship with social media? 
Girl, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, it's all over the place. Right now, it's good. Um, I think my relationship to social media is always in relationship to how good my life is. Um, like, I feel very full right now. Um, I'm coming off of Paris Men's Fashion Week and got here. And there's so many amazing exhibitions on right now. And so social media is fun because I have an opportunity to share these incredible things with folks. Like I feel like a person who I very much get filled with stuff and I have to let it go. Like I am such an overshare in every sense. And when I see things that I find to be beautiful, my first instinct is to like turn to my left or right. Like I'm that person who talks through movies. Like, and so social media <laughs> gives me the opportunity to bring people in. Yeah. And right now is such an exciting time to like, just physically like this week, last week, there's such a good time to bring people in. I remember really noticing your social media when you used to take pictures in museums next to um, sort of master paintings and stuff. And I just always thought that was a really exciting way to really open up a new audience to those, those works that not necessarily everybody pays attention to or can find a connection with, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I thought that was such a powerful thing that you did. Yeah, yeah. It's really cool. I love it. I went to the Gemelda Gallery. I'm like... My German is trash. Um, but being in Berlin and seeing the art that they have there, because no one really talks about Berlin and like especially older things that are there. Like yeah. it's very, you know, the Biennale is so hip and fun and flexible and all these things. But they have so many, I mean, for really complicated reasons, of course, but so many amazing master paintings and all of these things. And, um, you know, there is nothing quite like seeing a Titian. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's also for me as a black woman in the arts, nothing, nothing quite like seeing black models in those paintings, understanding compositionally the power that they hold and that a painting like Olympia would not exist without her counterpart. Um, when I was, I was just in Paris and I went to the black models exhibition at Musée d'Orsay and which had started in, in New York, but I miss it in New York, but seeing that show, and being able to understand, and even the wall text in the beginning of the exhibition, when they talk specifically about the contributions of Black people to art history, counting being a model as part of that, ending the exhibition with artists of the Harlem Renaissance, um, and even later, it's so important to see yourself in those galleries too. I think, you know, to circle back when I was first starting my art history degree, I felt like I was robbed of that experience to understand contextually mm -hmm. my role that I played. Um, or the role that my ancestors played, um, or the role that many of my classmates played in relationship to these paintings in our own respective lineages. There's a distance that's created sometimes in our history and the way that it's taught. And some of my best professors are the ones who like, I had a professor who taught Dutch painting and we looked at orgies for like a whole week, you know, like Bosch orgies in class because, you know, that's how he knew we would retain this information. And if you don't have that interpretive muscle, you're just looking at stuff, you know, I think a lot about how we're surrounded by art all the time. Like I'm one of those like very woo-woo people, you know, architecture is everywhere, but without an interpretive device, you're just in a building. That's just life. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I truly try to use social media to help to interpret those things, or at least like to share the way that I'm interpreting them, even if there isn't always the extension, extension to others, but just that it's a possibility for you. Even if you get to the thing and say, I hate it, at least you got to the thing in some way. And how does all of this stuff kind of inform your creative process as a curator? It makes it very 
I mean, it, it makes things fun. I mean, it's, it's funny because I, my mom has this incredible story of when I was younger and um, in kindergarten and how I would trade my lunch for other students' art projects because I knew they were better at making art than me. That is amazing. So I've always been <laughs> this person. Um, and so for me, I think it's it's just a matter of like developing my own taste and trusting it more and more. You know, yeah. like I think of all the incredible things I've been granted in this world, a sense of choice and a respect for my own choices and especially in creative fields is the one that I wouldn't trade for anything else. Like I know what I like and I know that it's good, even if someone else doesn't like it. And you know, you sometimes have that moment, like you get the ox card in the car, <laughs> you're the only one jamming to the song, but you know, like sometimes you got to give yourself the pep talk. Like I really wanted to hear the song, yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe they're being quiet because they're meditating on how great the song is. Um, but with art, I think it's been, uh, it's been great too to be a person who's like a selector, you know, like I feel, ne I almost never feel like a curator, though I know it's the most appropriate title. Um, I very much feel like, like a DJ almost or something, um, which is why I love all my DJ friends. Cause I'm just like, you move the crowd, you keep the tempo going, you bring people into the party, you're managing so many ways of caring for people at once. Um, and it is extremely more democratic than being a curator because you have to interface one-on-one. -on -one. And I think that that is more apt for describing the work that I'm doing because um, I have to be there with attention as well because of social media or because of my work that I've done IRL. I have to be there to confront the, the tension in a way that curation doesn't always require. But at any rate, I think amidst all of that, I've been granted through having an incredible family, the gift of that confidence around decision-making. As we were talking about before, like the pace of life is so fast now and there's so much pressure just to put out put out put out keep putting out content keep doing this keep showing up here being everywhere and I think it takes a lot to have that time to be able to reflect back and truly understand what your mission is and where you want to go mm -hmm. I'm kind of in awe of your ability to just really see and be that focused is that something that you feel like you work on a lot or has it become more intuitive now yeah I mean it's not always neat mm -hmm. <laughs> um for sure uh, but I think for me, it's more less about myself and like incredible self-awareness, but more about just having really incredible inspiration. You know, I have the great gift of having had some of the best bosses in the industry and watching these women in leadership positions and how they move through the world. Right. And so I see myself and mirror myself against someone um, and not not boss in this case, but someone like Dr. Deb Willis. Where it's like watching her, this woman who has written no less than like 40 books, you know, like understanding what it means to really show up. And, you know, I, I messaged her on like Facebook or something random because a friend wanted to be in touch with her and her getting back to them. What? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so I think for me, I, I just I, I speak sometimes about having just like a grand inheritance. You know, like I come in the wake of, of Deb. I come in the wake of Thelma. Literally, like the woman speaks in paragraphs. It's not fair. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, how did you get to the end of this so beautifully, <laughs> you know? And I know it's from really hard work and intensive listening and her having great mentors as well. But for me, it's more like an obsession with this amalgamation of, of people that I really see myself in. And so I, I try to move in their ways and then also not lose sight of, 
the things that I know that make me uniquely me. You know, like I get I get in trouble sometimes for cursing all the time. Like I can't help it. Like I can't help it. Um, or, you know, just I want to maintain a little bit of messiness as well because my career did start, you know, nearly 10 years ago, which is crazy. So what does it mean to also be a young person mm-hmm. still and not, you know, not necessarily make a ton of mistakes, but also move with grace through all of these spaces where it is a full contact sport. You know, like I really don't have a lot of wiggle room mm-hmm. um, more and more now, but you have to be considered. You have to be really thoughtful. Um, but luckily I don't have to just, I'm not my only, you know, guinea pig in it. I can, I can really learn from the way that other people have done very similar things. You're listening to The Messy Truth, conversations on photography. I'm really fascinated by the position that you find yourself in now through all of the hard work and the creativity that you've been putting out there. You've got certain influence within the community. And it's it's interesting to me to think about what that must be like for you looking back 10 years ago to when you started out or what it's like for students that you're mentoring. And do you see kind of a big shift between now and then and how things have changed? For me, side note, I would say that it's more about influence than privilege. Um, Because as, you know, at this stage in my career, when I look back at the last 10 years of work that I've done, it's been incredible to, or almost 10, incredible to see the amount of influence that someone like myself can have. I am still not even aware of the ways in which my work has impacted other people until they bring it back to me. Sometimes I, I say things and it's absolutely in a moment of courage, but there's also that level of like, I just blacked out (laughs) and then I come to you and I'm like, oh, wow, you all were listening. Like this thing needed to be said, you know? Um, And I'm, I'm a person where like I got most opinionated in high school. Like I just have a really difficult time when things don't feel right. And I, I just have a difficult time staying in rooms like that. I feel guilty and I feel heavy and I've been on this pursuit to feel levity, right? And so when it comes to talking to young people, it is the levity that I'm going for to understand that all the work that I'm doing will be easier if I have more like-minded people in the rooms with me. And I know it's my responsibility to get them there. I know it is because people invited me into those rooms. It wasn't like I woke up one day and suddenly just ran head forward. You know, I had taken one art history class before I was admitted to the internship at the Studio Museum in Harlem. One, on Asian art. Someone said yes to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so many people at institution mentored me. So many people along my way have mentored me. I would be a fool. I'd be struck by lightning, you know, not to to give that back. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it doesn't take that much, you know? Like, yeah. I do it at a volume that, like, probably isn't healthy. But it really doesn't take that much. And so many people in creative fields, talk about pipeline issues, talk about lack of applications, talk about lack of photographers for projects, talk about lack of projects, all these things. We all have a responsibility to make these things happen. We all have a responsibility to extend. We all have a responsibility to research more, to be more thoughtful, because the higher that you get, the better view you have. And I'm just not a kind of person that can be at the, you know, whatever level that I am at at the summit and look down and, and not be extending. Also, I don't want to just keep looking up because mm-hmm. that is it's a great point. Crazy making. Yeah. You know, like I've ac- accomplished so much 
in such a short amount of time. I don't take it for granted. If I was just running, I'd burn out. Mm -hmm. But instead, I can have the most fulfilling afternoon with, you know, 20, 18 year olds and be intimidated by them and then wait for them and see them. You know, like there's different generations and iterations of all of these creative fields, whatever. And I feel very much like I've survived like my round one. And now I can see the like next group coming in. I'm like, oh, and they come up to me and they're like, oh, you came to talk at my school or whatever. And I don't necessarily want that. Um, I, I, you know, I love also the idea that I talk about creativity and art and people are like, oh, fuck that. I'm going to go be a scientist. <laughs> um, but there is something really nice about knowing that, you know, you see, you know, you invest your time. Yeah. And then you see people come back and then they know too, like, oh, I might. You know, of all the things that inspire me about the way that you work, actually, it's the giving back that inspires me the most. And then you just get more and more momentum as the generations go forward. That's the big goal, I think. That's really powerful. Just the evolution of the community around the work as well. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your museum experience, because museums are historically, and I'll be interested to hear your views on this, kind of very elitist structures. And I wondered what your experience was like working within the Met and if you think things are shifting for the better in terms of your focus on accessibility? Yeah, it's an excellent question. It's something I've been really obsessed with lately and it's going to sound ridiculous. I feel ridiculous thinking it, but I just didn't really understand how exclusive elitist museums were. I just didn't. Um, and I'm so thankful for that ignorance. Um, I'm, I'm very, you know, shutters on sometimes when I want something. And there is definitely a part of me that was, you know, when I was applying to work at the Met, I didn't think they were going to hire me, but I knew that they should. Mm -hmm. But now at this stage, and especially in the transition out of working there, I had incredible anxiety about leaving an institution. Um, it was almost as if I drank the Kool-Aid and suddenly understood that if I didn't say that I work at the Met, no one is going to want to talk to me at a dinner party. Ridiculous. Like a ridiculous line of thought. But I had this like pros and cons and there was like the dinner party question. What do you do? Mm. You know, Awful question. Awful question. <laughs> awful <laughs> question. But people want to know why you're there. As a black woman in an art space, people want to know why I am there. They want to know why I'm not serving them. They want to know. And I'm not, it's not lost on me. Um, why I'm invited, why I'm at table one, why I'm in this dress, why I'm in this, you know, why this person comes and kisses me on the cheek. Why even when this person fully introduces me and feels like they have to tell more stories for this other person to even look at me and talk to me, they want to know why I'm there. And so with some distance now, getting into like more dinner parties and whatever, um, I am really coming to better understand how just how exclusive and elitist these spaces are. I got comfortable to a degree. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know what that means moving forward, but it is something that I think I never really understood before. I don't think I could actually get close to it um, where people, I think at a, another stage of my career, even friends like wanted to invite me to be surprised about my success, which I am not. Um, because I'm, I'm doing the work. Like mm -hmm. I know intimately how much work I did to get where I've gotten. Um, and so I'm not necessarily surprised, but with some distance, I'm also like, oh, right. Like none of this was set up for me. None of this was set up for me. I'm so happy that I was there. And 
Also, when I got there, I was welcomed with open arms, you know? And I think that that for me is, is something that I'm trying to find the balance in the way that I tell my story where I don't want to be overly optimistic because that's very much a big marker of my, the beginning part of my career. Um, how to be realistic and then also tell the truth about my story. How to say it wasn't necessarily easy for me, but it wasn't hard in the ways that maybe you'd think. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I'm, I'm so glad that I got there. And when I was there, I, I got there when I was 25 years old and people just knew I was an expert at the thing I did because it was either the blog or the work that they'd see me do at other institutions or the work they'd see me do outside of institutions. Um, but they knew that. And when I was in a room and when I spoke that I would, you know, be able to share something with them. And maybe that's because I'm also like really keen on being as compassionate as possible in rooms. Um, like my first year that I was there, I, I just would listen to people, which surprisingly isn't a thing that a lot of people in the arts do. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes there can be this uh, misunderstanding in that when you show up as a marginalized person that you have to break down the door, you have to run in, you have to go in headstrong. And there's a woman from, um, I forget her name now, but she runs Know Your Rights Camp. And I have to just say like, she's, her, her saying this like really shifted my perspective. Um, we were at the Lower East Side Girls Club benefit and she, she said to the young women in the room, Sometimes the doors are open. You don't have to run headstrong to break them open. Sometimes they're open. Um, and it's precisely because sometimes people like that woman are, are waiting for them on the other side. Or for me, like I'm waiting for you on the other side. Um, and so I have absolutely no regrets. And I, I feel very thankful that upon arrival, I had, I was just joining a group of experts and it was extremely humbling as well because they're like, oh, you got written up in Vogue. Sure. <laughs> like no one cared. No one cared. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the sort of different modalities of art institutions because it feels like they are serving, even though it's evolving, they are serving quite a narrow slice of the population. And I wondered what you think are the key things that are missing in terms of making, you know, museums making that extension to a wider public or a wider art audience. Yeah. Well, I would say that museums rarely are explicitly reaching one group or very intentionally reaching one group. I think sometimes it's our assumption that they are because of bad marketing, right? Or because of really terrible wall text. Um, there's these things that you get into the space. If you get to the space, there's signifiers that, okay, this isn't made for me. Um, but it's, I don't think in mission statement that that's the goal of many institutions. And so it really is a matter of one institutions making sure that they're hiring people that are better at talking to people. Um, that's also really difficult in so many global economies because so many people are underpaid and it's a whole other conversation, mm -hmm. but a really excellent staff can shift the way that a museum communicates still kind of tethered to this mission. But when you really look at the mission statement for a lot of institutions, the founding principles are incredible. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not that they're not built for it. It's just that sometimes people lose sight of how abundant um, the application of any mission can be. And then the other thing too is, you know, not being afraid to love something that maybe isn't yours, you know, or isn't marketed as yours or doesn't feel like yours, or maybe loving something that feels like yours so hardcore that despite whatever barriers, real or otherwise, you make it there. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's that, like there's this weird, almost like pattern master thing about getting into museums, um, especially as a visitor. But there there really are, I think, 
at their base and core, when you really just look at the language, there's so much more abundance than we can perceive. It's just a matter of making sure that on the inside, if you're the head of security, that you know that all your security guards are ready to receive so many different types of people to your institution. Mm -hmm. That has to be a priority. You know, um, that means that when your lecture, your curators are doing visiting lectures, that they understand that, you know, they're talking to 22 year olds instead of, you know, 87 year olds, or they're talking to students instead of donors, or they're talking to donors instead of students to really imbue that, that dynamism, I think is something that needs to happen more and more. Um, being master generalists is something that needs to happen more and more. So I'd love to talk to you a little bit about photography now. Mm -hmm. And I read that photography is kind of one of your favorite art forms. So I'd love to know what excites you about it. I don't know what excites me about photography. I also don't know why naturally whenever I'm recalling an artist or recalling something, it's almost always photography. It is the weirdest tick of mine because I know so much art now, but I still, you know, gravitate towards some of the same things. I think in some ways it really is a byproduct of the work of James Van Der Zee and Gordon Parks and Carrie Mae Weems and everyone in Kaimo and Jay Workshop, like thinking about an artist like Ming Smith being one of the first black women to be collected by the MoMA. She's a photographer, you know, and, and thinking contextually about the history of photography, also in the refusal of photography of an art as an art form, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah, that's exciting uh, as someone who represents so many minorities that have been rejected from the arts, right? Like, what does it mean to be, you know, on the team of the underdog as well, where now photography feels so present, right? So Instagram and, you know, whatever, or you have like these huge photojournal prizes where it's like one of the forms of art that I think really touches a lot of people or commercial photography, whatever. Um, people really rate it, but art didn't always, yeah. you know? And so it's, it's interesting to just feel so connected to that medium. I think it's just one of those things that it's, it's bigger than me. But so, I don't know, it just it fills my cup. I'm really curious about what you think about trends in terms of trends in photography, but trends just generally. One of the things that really frustrates me, or that I should say I kind of struggle with, is this sort of faddiness that the industry can go through. So, you know, five years ago, it was all about the female gaze and there was this huge sudden appreciation or focus on young female artists, which was absolutely fantastic. But, you know, as with everything, it sort of slowly starts to burn out. And I feel like now there's a real celebration of young black artists, especially in photography. That's really what only I can speak to. And it's been incredible in terms of sort of seeing people rewrite their history, seeing people rewrite their culture and really bring focus to these incredible voices like Tyler Mitchell, Campbell Addy. But in the back of my mind, I'm always concerned about it being a fad. I hate it. I hate the fact that we kind of people jump on things and kind of ride them out and then sort of leave them by the wayside. And I'm just interested to know your thoughts on trends, because I feel quite conflicted in it. I think sometimes it's really great that I even hate the word trend, but that they bring attention to groups of people that were previously not paid attention to. I think that part of it is fantastic. And I think even though some of the commercial applications can be questionable, the fact that these artists are being paid well for making work, I think is really important. But I wonder how we can make the appearance of these voices more 
long term and give them more longevity and more power in the industry. And I think a lot of it is, to your earlier point, is about setting an example and bringing community and everybody lifting everybody up. But I was just really curious what you think about in terms of trends and how you see that as a positive or negative impact on the industry. Yeah, I think the language of trend is an interesting one because I think it's just more a matter of different eras and different areas of focus, right? Um, I think for many, especially marginalized people, you know, people talk about the forgotten history of X, Y, or Z. The history is not forgotten. You know, there's always someone who is around to tell the history, someone who, you know, inherits even a morsel of the thing, or we wouldn't be talking about it in the first place. And I think when thinking about different eras of photography or different moments, it's really important to just think about the role we have in all of that. You know, it it is almost convenient to say it is difficult to do things. It's a language that I want us all to move away from, where for so many of us, it is just our duty. It's just part of the work to understand that we have to show up for others, full stop all the time to make sure that this is not a moment. And I think as well, it's it's also an interesting time where I was talking to my friend, Suze, who lives here and is amazing, about how there's a, you know, a moment in curation where um, a lot of curators are looking at these times that we're in and presenting some dystopian, dark art. You know, like the Venice Biennale right now feels like a really dark disco club. And for me personally, I'm almost more interested at this stage in looking back at artists in other moments of political upheaval as opposed to you know, 100% what's going on right now. Yes, I love learning about new artists who are working around the globe, tackling these things or, or utilizing their art to share really important, complicated messages. But at the same time, it's kind of nice in this moment where we're looking at Kwame Braithwaite's work again. You know, thinking about like, what does the Black is Beautiful movement mean today? What did it mean then? We mm-hmm. never really gave it, or not, we never really gave it because that's a historical, but now we're having another opportunity to really center it you know you have like rihanna you know posting Kwame braithwaite photos mm-hmm. um and so that helps i think my optimism is that it helps people understand better that they're in a lineage like for me right where it's mm-hmm. like am i self-aware am i you know whatever all these things about how i think about presenting myself i am most inspired by the people who came before me what does it mean to know that you are not solo in your pursuit of success, excellence, your artistry. Um, And so I like thinking about, you know, what does it mean to listen to like Sylvester or something, you know, like making disco music in one of the most tumultuous, sad times in American history. It's incredible to think about, you know, those, those cultural moments that happen and understand in context that, you know, I can keep moving forward, even if the phone stops ringing, that my hero, the phone didn't ring for all the time but it doesn't mean to stop making the work because mm-hmm. um, it's, you know, external validation only gets you so far. That's a very good point. I also wanted to chat to you a little bit about your upcoming project with Jenna Wortham, the Black Futures But Can you talk a little bit about how that project came about and how you see that shaping? It's coming out soon, right? Yeah. Um, next year, hopefully. Wow. So Black Futures is such an, a fun project, especially to talk about from its inception, because Jenna DM'd me. Like, that's how it started. The book started (laughs) with (laughs) Jenna sliding in my DMs and I almost dropped my phone. I was like maybe on the bus 
and couldn't believe that this writer who I had so loved, um, I'd like just maybe read her piece on like Black Mirror or something. And I was just like, how does one's brain work in such a complicated way? And here she was in my DMs. And um, so we met up for lunch. And over lunch, she talked about an idea for a zine project um, where she wanted to really look at creativity. And it's awesome because I am not necessarily that kind of person who starts new things. Not necessarily. Like, I'm very much like a person who the universe brings things and then I say yes and then I make them happen. (laughs) And Jenna's the other end of the spectrum where she's very like, I want to start this. I want to do this. I'm a generator. Like, she is my hero for that way of working. And so when she proposed the zine idea, I, because I'm a sadomasochist, I was like, no, a zine, no, (laughs) let's make a book. Um, Because I think of zine culture as such an incredible um, part of, especially for um, marginalized people across the globe, like a way of communicating with each other. And um, we actually do have some incredible zines referenced in in the text. Um, But for me, I wanted it to have more of like a sonic boom then I think the way that zines are set up now are able to accomplish in a way that, you know, like I just, I don't know, I had a vision. And so we decided to make it into a book, an anthology, and we kind of had a dream board moment and like who we wanted to work with, how we wanted it to look. And like Chris Jackson's name was all over it. (laughs) Um, And we went to one world and like, it was almost like immediately we were all on the same page and it's just been this incredible love fest since then. Um, but what we're trying to to speak to in the book is not just black creativity, but really what does it mean to be black and alive right now? Um, inspired very much by Toni Morrison's black book in the 1970s. What is it like? Where are we? Like, let's temperature check. Um, what does it mean that we're in this moment of extreme connectedness, but also that we're uploading these ways or we're building these ways and um, these bridges on platforms that we will never own? and immersing our media into these spaces in a way that we will never have ownership in the same way ever again. It doesn't make it any less worth it, but it is something to talk about. What does it mean to be a group of people who are almost always on the brink of erasure in some way, shape, or form, finding the space for connectivity that also is so fragile? And the the book feels like an opportunity to, to steal some of that agency back, to answer questions about who we are and where we are, and especially for future generations to you know, be able to have something to hand off. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was fantastic to meet you and I really appreciate you making the time for us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to The Messy Truth. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake and design is by Ruby White. You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at Jem Fletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at jemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts.